All right. All right. Welcome back to the Darren Woodson Show. Uh, today's guest, Daryl Smith, good friend of mine. And Daryl, I'm gonna I'm gonna intro you, and and I'm gonna allow you to give us a little bit more of what you're doing now, and then we're gonna jump back into your past and your journey as we move forward. Tell us who you are, what you're doing right now, and the title that you have right now um, uh, sure. for the job you're in. Yeah, uh, happy to do that. Um, so in terms of jobs, I'm currently the president of uh, Global Portfolio Operations for Skyview Capital. It's a Los Angeles-based private equity firm. Um, my job, my role is really to ensure that uh, a couple of things. One, um, we make smart investments. So I'm involved from the very early stages of an investment. We buy uh, all sorts of businesses. Many of them are divisions of large companies uh, that we target and, and uh, buy and then uh, carve out from the larger business. Uh, so I'm involved in screening those, those uh, opportunities. And once we buy the business, when we're in the, the, the acquisition process, I have teams that perform operational due diligence on the deals. We look at every aspect of the business from their customers, employees, um, markets that they sell in. We get familiar with all that stuff, financials. Uh, and then um, when we, after we buy it, my guys are responsible for operating the business. They work with the management teams, the companies to make them more successful. Uh, they, they're very hands-on. I have guys that, that are interim uh, operating officers in the company, you know, COOs, CEOs, and uh, CFOs. Um, and, uh, we're, we're just involved in every aspect of, of our, of our, uh, acquisitions. We currently have seven companies mm. in our portfolio. They range in size from a, you know, a couple hundred employees to 16,000 employees. Uh, I've got operations all over the globe where we have, uh, our, one of our businesses has sites in 16 countries. So it, there's a lot going on, especially with this COVID-19 stuff. Uh, there's a lot of things to keep track of with the portfolio and, uh, you know, we're, we're chasing about 20 deals right now. Uh, our firm buys distressed companies. So this is actually a very target rich environment for mm -hmm. us. Um, and you know, we're pretty good at, <clears throat> excuse me, identifying situations where due to our operational expertise, my team's expertise, we can get in and fix companies that are broken. So I think with this time right now and, and the COVID-19, you know, there's that line of being opportunistic and making sure, okay, hey, this is this is a period where, you know, companies like Skyview Capital, okay, this is this is where the space that we operate in and finding distressed companies that now that pool of distressed companies may grow. But there's that line of sensitivity too, right? Where it's, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to be viewed of as taking advantage of a disaster, mm -hmm. a global disaster that we're in sure. right now. Um, but, but for you guys, how has this, you know, the, you said you're looking at 20 companies right now, how has this expand your, expanded your, um, your reach of companies or the exposure to companies or, you know, just understanding that, okay, Hey, there really is more opportunity, you know, that now immediately looks very different than it did 60 days ago. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very good question. I think ironically, um, the opportunity uh, said is expanded within our portfolio more than it has in our deal flow. What I mean by that is a couple of our portfolio companies uh, were doing okay, but 
you know, when this happened, they were able to quickly uh, develop some solutions that customers appreciated. We have very nimble, entrepreneurial-minded uh, CEOs and operating uh, executives in my team. Our call center business, for example, 16,000 employees all over the globe. Within 10 days, our, our company, Continuum Global um, Solutions, moved all their employees from, or most of their employees from working in the uh, uh, 35 facilities we have around the globe to be working at home. So, you know, just imagine what that involved. I mean, you're in India or you're in the Philippines and, you know, you got to take computers to your home and, and set them up. And, yeah, connectivity uh, all in those countries stuff. looks a little different than, uh, than it yes. does here stateside. It, Exactly. There's, a, there's just a bunch of pro- complexities associated with that. Managing a team remotely, you know, is tough in that environment. So our, our folks have been pretty nimble and smart about how they've responded to this uh, this crisis. And it is a crisis. This is all about crisis leadership and being able to lead people in, in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty and you have to make rapid decisions. Um, the the uh, pipeline, on the other hand, Many of the deals that I mentioned were already in there. Uh, we've, we've seen some uptick, but there were several opportunities that we'd been looking at for a while. And uh, for one reason or the other, the, the sellers were dragging their feet. When COVID-19 first hit, everything stopped. And now people are starting to get back into the, into the groove and we're starting to get some momentum uh, in some of the deals. I would suspect, though, that that will that momentum will increase on the deal side as companies have to make decisions about what they do with their, you know, with their uh, if they're private equity guys, their portfolio, or if they're a large corporation, if they have non-core assets, that's what we typically target. Sometimes those are the first things that are spun out. Um, and I, I look at it this way: we aren't, you know, we've been through a couple of these cycles. We don't necessarily take advantage of, a, of other people's pain. But what, what, what we do is provide a solution to big companies that aren't as nimble, aren't as able to respond to changes in the market, buy those assets, carve them out, provide a, a safe landing for the, excuse me, for the employees and the customers and take those companies to the next level. You know, many times the businesses we buy aren't, aren't the focus of, of the large corporations. They're the, the, the stepchildren. And we're able to give them some, some focus, some, you know, some discipline around process, around budgeting, around a, a bunch of things, business fundamentals. Um, and then through, you know, some creativity, creative sales um, strategies and just, you know, focusing on, on growing the business smartly, we're able to take them to the next level. So um, that doesn't always happen when companies are in big division, small Business is a division of a large corporation. Sometimes they get lost, and uh, we're able to, you know, find real diamonds in the in the rough there and take them to the next level. So leadership has been a part of this, and and I know, you know, with COVID hitting, you're starting to see the fact that you're gonna that, that those that are out there that really step up are the true leaders right now because you you know how things work when 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 it hits the fan. Yep. The, the true, the true ones are going to step up to the plate. That's Have true. you witnessed that? And then I want to take you back after after you answered that question about mm-hmm. you know those leaders that you've seen that have stepped up. I want to take you back to your childhood, 
because mm-hmm. you've been a leader in the community for a long time. You're a leader in your business right now, but I, I want to take you back to your childhood after the next question. So go ahead and, and answer this one first, uh, as far as mm-hmm. what you're seeing in the market, as far as leadership standing up. Sure. So, I mean, again, within our firm, our portfolio, I'm blessed to have some, some amazing leaders uh, in our portfolio companies. One of the guys that runs a, a call center business in New York, um, as you guys know, I mean, there's a lot of pain in New York and he supports the city of New York uh, through uh, call center operations. He has the multiple challenges. I mean, if you can think of for a moment, not only is there a lot of, um, a lot of call volume uh, due to COVID-19 and how the city's responding that they, that the team has to manage, you know, he's had employees that he's had to uh, let go, not fire, but just, you know, let them go home and we would love ones that are sick. Um, you know, none of our people are sick, fortunately. Um, but he's had to, you know, manage that. <clears throat> he's had uh, a 50% increase in volume, which puts stress on the team. Uh, many of the team members are, are, you know, have loved ones that are, that are ill. Um, you know, the, 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 the virus has really affected uh, almost all New Yorkers. So in one way or another, so he's working through the, you know, the challenge of dealing with huge uh, business uh, challenges due to the increased volume of a, a reduced workforce in terms of numbers while leading people through a tough time, you know, something that's very difficult emotionally. Um, and, uh, and, and having to maintain very strict standards around hygiene and, you know, the way that people operate because you just need one sick person to come in that facility and they're shut down for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just the, 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 the it, it, this is a situation where the, you know, the discipline and the, the things that he's been, he's had in place and it, it's been a part of that culture from the beginning really become important. And, and that's a really good uh, way of thinking about crisis leadership, you don't learn how to lead in a crisis or your people don't learn how to respond to a crisis when it hits. I mean, there's some things you learn, but if you're disciplined and you, you operate well, you have a, a healthy culture, it makes getting through something like this a lot easier. If the culture is dysfunctional, if people have poor, don't communicate well, they don't trust each other, um, you know, if you don't have, you know, disciplined processes and stuff, that all comes out in a crisis and things start falling apart uh, rapidly. So, you know, I'd argue that not only is he, he and his team perform well in this crisis, but they did a lot of things, a lot of the fundamentals right before this ever hit. Mm. It's just showing in the crisis. Yeah. So take us back, Daryl. I know you grew up in South Central California and we're speaking to, to Daryl Smith, president of global operations for Skyview Capital. Daryl, take us back. You grew up in South Central uh, Los Angeles um, tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you were raised and how you came up. Sure. So I, I grew up, uh, in LA, um, in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, during the time, I think, um, if you guys ever saw the movie Boys in the Hood, that's pretty much yes. our story growing mm-hmm. up there. Um, I was, uh, raised by a single mother. I'm a new, my dad, but I wasn't, he wasn't in the house, you know, um, and, um, you know, it was a place where there was violence, there was opportunity to get in trouble, but, you know, you, you, back then, at least you, you could, you could choose not to do it. You could, you know, go to school, you can hang around the right group and, and stay away from, from, uh, bad stuff. 
it got tougher to do as I got into high school uh, with the introduction of uh, crack and some other stuff. Uh, it, it just, the, the, the violence and some of the other stuff became more, you know, almost ubiquitous. I mean, it was just kind of everywhere when I was in college. Um, but um, my mom really valued education. Uh, she was insistent that, you know, I got out of uh, the neighborhood I grew up in and, you know, got uh, bus to middle school and then high school. Outside of L.A.? Of town. I mean, okay. Yeah. In L.A., but on the other side. I mm. went to John Burroughs. Uh, junior high school, which is in Hancock Park. I don't know if you're familiar with L.A., but it's a pretty fluent area, Hancock Park. And uh, Fairfax High, which if you're a Guns N' Roses fan or um, <laughs> what's the other one? Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think they went to our school. Mm-hmm. Bunch of bunch of famous entertainers went there. Um, you know, that's where I went to high school. And that was really an interesting experience for me because um, – on multiple levels. One that was an excellent high school. It was probably academically one of the best schools in LA. Uh, I had an ROTC program, which I got involved with there. Um, so that's really where I kind of got introduced to the military uh, and, and decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then it was a pretty uh, diverse school. Uh, LA is diverse, but, but Fairfax was probably more diverse than many. It was probably 40 or 50% Jewish. Fairfax has a, that area in LA has the second uh, largest population of people of Jewish uh, descent in the United States, second in New York. Uh, then there was a lot of Asian kids, a lot of black kids, a lot of everything. So very comfortable um, in that high school, uh, going to, with you know school with kids from very different ethnicities, uh, backgrounds. The academic challenge there was was pretty intense. Uh, Were you a good the, student? I was a I was a decent student. I was I was good enough to get into a pretty good college, but I, you know I wasn't setting the world on fire. You know I was I just worked hard, man. Kept my head down, and 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 there were kids there that were very very bright. So it it I always tell people, you know, you want to go to school with with people that are smarter than you. You want to work with people that are smarter. Than you you want to be in places where you're challenged. And Fairfax challenged me uh, academically. So, um, but went to went to school there. Applied, went in high school to the Naval Academy, West Point, the Citadel. Um, had no interest in going to school in LA or California. Had no interest in going to civilian college. Was pretty sure that you know I wanted to do a career in the military. Uh, that was my focus as a kid. It was really about um, preparing myself to serve in the military. I felt like you know, it was my calling. It was what I was made to do. Now, is that, and, was that um, a decision, not to cut you off, was that a decision based off, because I know your father was served in the, was a Marine, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So yeah. was that, was that something that you saw at a young age? It, it was, a, my father's uh, service was definitely an influence on me. Uh, but I think it was reinforced, you know, through my you know, experience in ROTC and some other programs they had in, uh, in California, they had a program at Camp Pendleton. It was uh, called Devil Pups. Marines are devil dogs. They were named that in World War One by the Germans because they fought like dogs from hell. That's what <laughs> Germans said. So we had this program down in in uh, in uh, Southern California, Camp Pendleton, where they took you know middle school kids, cut the hair off, put them through like a boot camp experience. And it was one of those situations where, at a very young age, I felt like 
you know, the Marine Corps specifically at the time was a, a true meritocracy. They didn't care, you know, what you look like, how big or small you were. Um, you know, it was all about how much heart you had uh, and, and your ability to just, you know, uh, lead and to, to, to deal with uh, adversity and, and come out on top, never quitting. So I love that aspect of the Marine Corps. It's what motivated me while I was in school to get good grades. I wanted to go to, to a service academy or, or the Citadel uh, because I really felt like the military offered me the best opportunity to, you know, to, to be my best self, yeah. to get well, a great it, education, to lead, and to be in a place where I could be successful. You know, your, your, your story is, is, is similar to mine as far as growing up. Uh, when you got into the education part, you lost me. I was gone. I was out <laughs> went to Arizona State, and that's <laughs> far from the Naval Academy. But I want to go back on this, on your childhood, because there's so many listeners that are out there that have, have had to overcome um, some of the obstacles at a young age, and some of them that haven't truly overcome mm-hmm. those obstacles. What the, what, give us, go deeper into the mindset of the day-to-day of what you were overcoming. Cause you're right. You're at a time in, in, in your neighborhood with crack cocaine. I remember crack cocaine hit the inner mm-hmm. city uh, in the projects area in, in, in Phoenix, mm-hmm. Arizona. And it was like a war zone, man. I mean, mm-hmm. people that you saw that were stand up people that were great moms and dads were no longer there. Yeah. They, they, they were addicted yeah. to crack. So give us a little background on, how you overcame the, that situation when you could have mm-hmm. easily gotten involved in the gangs, gotten involved in the crack mm-hmm. cocaine. What was it? Was it your mother, your father? Give us a little bit more background on that. Well, it was, it was a lot of things. Um, I think the, my mom definitely had a huge impact on me there. I mean, in terms of, I just didn't want to disappoint her. Right. So tried to, tried to stay away from stuff. Again, crack cocaine was not a big deal until probably my senior year in high school. And by then I was kind of on another trajectory. What I witnessed uh, was, you know, when I was at the academy, I would come home every six months or whatever on leave, and I, I could just see the neighborhood deteriorating. What, what, what did happen uh, probably, uh, I don't know, as I was getting out of, out of middle school, going into high school, was uh, the high school I was supposed to go to, Washington High, had, had a violence problem, gang violence problem, pretty brutal gang war. It's probably about the time that, you know, drugs, we didn't know it then, but this is when drugs was really starting to influence the, uh, the, the, the street activity. Uh, there was a lot of money going in the neighborhood. People were getting, gangs were getting a hold of automatic weapons. So, you know, those two forces kind of collided, right? You had uh, these kids that were, uh, you know, they now had a profit motive to get territory. It wasn't just about pride or anything. They were fighting over street corners to sell these drugs. And these, this high school became uh, uh, almost the epicenter of that. So there was a lot of violence there. And that was one of the things my mother wanted me to avoid was going to school where I could lose my life. So that was part of a uh, part of it was just her, you know, wisdom in recognizing that this, this was not going to get better is only going to get worse. She didn't want me anywhere near it. Um, I think having goals, uh, having a purpose beyond day-to-day survival, uh, while day-to-day survival was, you know, was always on my mind, uh, but knowing that there was a way out and I needed to focus 
be disciplined to, to get there and not make bad choices kept me squared away. You know, I was a pretty um, straight kid. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't drink. I didn't party. I didn't even go to my prom. I mm. mean, I was so focused on getting the hell out of LA that a lot of things that normal, normal kids did, I didn't do. I mean, it just wasn't a priority. I remember when I got my uh, Naval ROTC Marine Option Scholarship, um, the uh, guy that uh, the Marine captain that uh, helped me through the process said, Hey, you know, you know, the Naval Academy is a really tough place. I told him I wanted to go. He says, it's a really tough place. You don't have a life, you don't have a social life. So he brought a guy in from a captain in from uh, San Diego, Marine recruit depot to talk me out of going to the Naval Academy and accept the Naval ROTC scholarship. And he, he went through this long list of things you wouldn't get to do uh, at the Naval Academy that you could do at a civilian college, like party and drink and chase women and all that. And you know, your time is very limited. You get, uh, as a freshman, as a plebe, you get about 12 hours of liberty a, a week. Right? Basically noon to midnight on Saturday. That's it. You, you're in uh, uniform the entire time. No civilian clothes. Can't have a car. Can't date. Can't listen to music. I mean, there's just a lot of can't. And this guy's going through all this stuff. And after he got done, I said, sir, are you finished? <laughs> like, what do you mean? I said, I, I don't do any of that stuff now. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't really have time. So, you know, I think I'm going to be all right. But, you know, there was just, I think a lot of it was, I, I will say this, a lot of it was driven by a, a, a fear, uh, a fear of failure, a fear of physical danger, a fear of, you know, a bunch of things that could go wrong. And I, I would say that uh, my, the, the lesson I've learned over the years is, Fear is, is probably not the, the healthiest emotion to have drive you. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have something positive in your life that you look forward to. I kind of had both, right? I was looking forward to get going to the Naval Academy uh, or West Point uh, and, and, and serving. Uh, but I also had this, these fears that, that probably kept me from doing some things that I, I probably could have done, probably could have had, a, you know, a more balanced life while I was, uh, while I was in high school, uh, later, you know, kind of longed for that. And, 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 and uh, when, especially when I was at the, the academy, there were times I was like, man, I wish I had done more to enjoy mm -hmm. life while I was, you know, not in this place. But, uh, but I, I, would, I would tell you that it's important not to let fear drive you, you know, because eventually it might get you through a, a season in your life, but it's not sustainable to live your life in fear. You know, you got to be able to get past that. And, and really look at, you know, the positive things in life. You need positive motivation to get you, get you going. My faith is a big part of that. I'm a Christian and, uh, I've learned that, man, fear, fear doesn't really, it's, it's not from God. So, you know, we, we got to trust him to, to get us past fear to, to, in order for us to be blessed and be a blessing to others. Daryl, I want to, uh, yeah. One of the things that I'm hearing from you is that from an early age, you know, you mentioned you had goals, um, but it also sounds like you had a belief that you could achieve those goals. And, you mm -hmm. know, when you said, hey, I'm not going to be in L.A., I had no intention of sticking around here. I wanted to go somewhere else. As a teenager, that's that's unique, I feel like, you know, because goals seem so far off, right? They seem, you mm -hmm. know, adulthood and college and all those things are so far. What do you think it was for you that gave you that sense of security that I can go achieve those goals? And obviously you were disciplined and you worked hard, but mm -hmm. 
Was that from your mom? Was that from the ROTC that said, okay, hey, if you lay out your goals and you know what you're working for, you can achieve those. But that foundation Mm -hmm. to me is intriguing because that's not something I I feel like a lot of teenagers, especially today, and, and I think the generations have changed, but, you know, having the confidence that I can, I can achieve something instead of just wandering aimlessly through life. And then when I get there, I'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, it, it, it's a combination of things. It was, it was definitely my parents had huge influence on me. They always built me up. They always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do. Mother and father, you know, uh, said that, uh, I think my dad, um, I guess you would call it perseverance and stubbornness. You know, he was in a wheelchair and the doctors told him he would never be able to drive again. And he was like, yeah, that's, he, he used some colorful language uh, <laughs> with the doctor and said, you know, that's, it's not true. Right. So he would drive all over LA. He got hand controls on his vehicle and he could do it. He just kind of demonstrated to me that you can't let a physical limitation like that keep you from doing what you want to do. Uh, my mother being a single parent, just seeing her struggle and, you know, uh, make sure that I had what I needed uh, was a great example of what you could do if you were committed and kept put your mind uh, to to living right. Um, and you know, but I think this tangible goal of going in the military, uh, you know, was was real for me. Uh, you know, there was you know, it was it was good to be able to uh, see people. People that set a great example in terms of leadership uh, and be around them. You know, they were great mentors. Uh, have them in your life and have them talk to you about what they're, you know, about their service, uh, the country, um, places they had been. I really, at an early age, had an interest in traveling, seeing the world. Uh, those were all real and tangible uh, things in my life that set me up to dream about doing some things that, you know, perhaps weren't as tangible. I mean, it wasn't like I'd actually been to Annapolis or West Point. I never, I didn't visit till I showed up there on, on induction day. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't as though I had, uh, um, I couldn't really, I didn't fully understand or appreciate the experience. I could read about it. I could talk to people, but by having people in my life, uh, around me that had had some experience in the military and explained to me what it was like and why they, why service was so important, uh, helped me, you know, set goals that got me there. I didn't particularly care, you know, for to take physics or take, um, you know, calculus in high school, but I knew I needed to take those classes to apply to school like the Naval Academy sports. I, you know, I was in shape, but they told me, look, if you don't, if you don't take, if you don't do a sport in high school, your chances of getting to the service academy pretty low. Uh, and they believe in the whole man concept, so you you have to excel in academics, leadership, and athletics. You know, most of the my classmates had letters in varsity sports. You know, um, so I went. I said, well, I don't know. I, I wasn't a big dude. I couldn't play football or nothing like that. So I, I ran. I knew how to run. So I, I was on the cross-country team, you know, and, and it was great. It was a great experience. Um, leadership, you know, same thing. It was, you know, I was in student council and some guy told me, hey, you ever heard of Boys? I, I was looking at the application in Naval Academy and heard about Boys State. And he's like, you, you want to go? I went last year. Nobody wants to go. Nobody's heard of it. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go. You know, being 
California boy state lieutenant governor. So it, it, it was just things that were, you know, you, you knew that these were the things you needed to do in order to go to the service academy. And they were all really good things. They, thank God that, you know, they, they insisted that I be, um, that I'd be a whole man, that I didn't just geek out and study. I had to do all these other things in order to, to be the kind of person they wanted me to be. And uh, that that's something that's really stuck with me my entire life. I mean, you think about it. So many people struggle with staying in shape because maybe they thought that, you know, the only thing that mattered was hitting the books. Well, you know, that's just part of your life at the Naval Academy. You have to be balanced and you have to be fit, you know. Um, maybe guys were jocks in school. They didn't care about school. That 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 doesn't work at my school. You know, mm. you, you have to. It's a very rigorous academic program. It's not like you go in there and getting to take some easy classes. They're all hard. You know, my, I had, I think, 20 or 21 hours just about every semester there until my senior year. And it, and it was, you know, an engineering base. I was an economics major, but I had to take, you know, <laughs> three semesters of calculus, you know, differential equations, chemistry, physics. Electrical engineering. Talking all the way. Are you all over our hands, Darren. Darren's oh, eyes just yeah, crossed and rolled back like, in his head. I just want to be a Marine. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're talking to athletes right now. You're way <laughs> over our head. Were you? Uh, <laughs> were you speaking like, Spanish right there? What, what, what language were you speaking just a second ago? <laughs> yeah, you know. So you know, and and you know, taking a full academic load and in, in sports, I think it's probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I was a boxer at Navy. Mm. And uh, I, I should have checked, chosen an easier sport. Sometimes I think that yeah. uh, that was just a you know, you know, just pouring gasoline on the fire there because mm -hmm. we had to train every morning. You got up from August to uh, March. You had to get up every morning, run. What time? You know? What time? I was up five thirty every morning. And uh, you go, you go for a run. You you know, and I'm not talking about a little jog. I mean, you either did the perimeter at the Naval Academy, which is five and a half miles, sometimes in the snow, or you're doing interval work in Halsey Fieldhouse. Um, and then um, in afternoons, you had, you know, either some kind of conditioning work or sparring or, you know, whatever torture the coach could think of that day. And it was tough. I mean, you, you know, I pulled all-nighters studying for exams and I'd go to practice and I would be tired and coach was like, hey, that's that's your problem. You know, you're mm -hmm. here to work. So if you, if you didn't show up and you got your bell rung, that's on you. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be any different in war. You know, you lose sleep in combat. What are you going to do? Tell the enemy, Hey, hold on, let me take a nap. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. And I want to, so, I want to, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt because it, you've, you've kind of relayed. Okay. It was difficult. It was challenging, but I don't think listeners really truly grasp what it is like going to a military academy. One of my best friends who I wrestled with uh, back in California uh, went to West Point and, mm -hmm. uh, and he wrestled at West Point. I mean, not only just being a cadet in the academy, right? The how arduous that process is going through just doing that because yeah. as you mentioned you know how difficult the schooling is because the academic standards there are night and a day or night and day above yeah. your you know your re regular collegiate yeah, experience because it's not like at smu and no, no offense to smu but it, if you get a, a c or a d on a paper like okay cool well i'll just try to make it better or i can just take another class next yeah. semester at the academies there's no room for failure because 
Yeah. If you're not getting the grades that you should be, okay, not only now do you have to make up those grades, now you got to go to extra classes to make those up, yeah. but then now you've got to march more and you've got all these consequences that come along with it, with the discipline that come with the academies. And then on top of that, put on the athletic team that you guys have to participate in and the additional training. So, I mean, you guys, and, and I'm only familiar with firsthand stories of West Point, but you know, you, you line up in the morning, every morning before yeah. you even do yeah. anything correct so marching mm -hmm. or uh oh gosh i forgot the term that, that y'all use but uh formation, formation. Line up, yeah formation yeah. so line up in formation and so that already is an early wake up before you mm -hmm. go to breakfast before you have chow and then you go to class all day and then you've got to study and all these things so i want to commend you and i want listeners to understand you know the the amount that you went through which we'll talk through the rest of your journey and how that helped shape you and how the academies help shape our you know military leaders uh, because I mean, if you're an athlete at an academy, and I think of Roger Staubach, and yeah. I think of you mm -hmm. know, there's some some guys here locally that went to the Naval Academy, and um, I mean, what that has done to yeah, they're prepare, built different. they're just built different, differently. yeah, different. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it sounds like, and what's what's unique to me is is you were drawn to that. I mean, from high school, you're like, that's what I'm yeah. looking for because of the yeah. discipline that that takes. So talk yeah. us through though, and and we've we've you know kind of let the cat out of the bag. You, you chose to go to the Naval Academy, but talk us through that process of, okay, I accepted, you know, the admittance to the Naval Academy as opposed to West Point or the Citadel. And then yeah. when you get there, walk us through that, that plebe year. Cause that plebe year yeah. you, you alluded to earlier, but that's different. Like that's, yeah. that's a hard mm -hmm. year to make it through. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I left out a couple of details and steps. So I didn't actually go straight into the Naval Academy. I went through the Naval Academy prep school okay. in Newport, Rhode Island. And thank God for it. It was a tough decision because I got into Citadel. I didn't get into West Point. And um, the Citadel was a ROTC, Naval ROTC scholarship. They pay for every, you know, pay for my school. Um, there was some expenses I would have to pick up, but they covered academics, you know, um, tuition, all that stuff, books. Um, West Point, I get in because uh, the physical requirements. I was a scrawny kid. And I didn't do well on their physical aptitude exam. I'll explain why that's important in a, in a minute. But I got in a Naval Academy prep school. And for whatever reason, you know, the 18-year-old kid, at first I was like, well, you know, uh, that's another year of my life. It's going to take five years instead of four. Most everybody takes five years now to get through college. But back then I was like, you know, I don't want to, do I really want to do that extra year? And I decided to go there because, you know, again, I wanted to be a Marine officer uh, you can't really be a Marine out of what point had I gotten in, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And while the Citadel was interesting, you know, it was military college. I was like, well, do I really want to have to pay anything to get abused for four years? So I'd rather get paid <laughs> to go to that. So, so, uh, so I went, I went to the prep school. It was the best thing in the world for me. It gave me another year to really mature, to get my study skills tighter, uh, and take some of the course, more, you know, some more uh, math and science, which really filled out my, my academic uh, prep. Uh, and I made some amazing friends. I mean, I, I mean, there are guys that I talked to, I just spoke with yesterday, you know, that on Zoom that I've known for, uh, for 37 years. So we were a tight bunch. The guys that, uh, gals that went there, a lot of them have done really well. Um, a couple of of my generals and admirals, uh, you know, done well in business. 
General Mattis back then was Major Mattis was the kind of senior Marine at, at NAPS, great leader, set a good example for us. Um, so it was just an amazing experience. Uh, it really prepared me for the Naval Academy. Uh, by the time I got there, got to plebe summer, um, it was a piece of cake. I honestly can say that the, so when you get to the academy in July or all the third academy, they put you through a, ba- a basic training type thing where they yell at you and just, you know, uh, get you used to the, the, the life there. Uh, it was a piece of cake because, you know, the, the Naval Academy prep school prepared us for all that stuff. Um, please summer. Um, one of the upperclassmen, you know, talks to me about uh, boxing. Uh, you know, he knew I was a runner. Um, so he's like, hey, you're inter- interested in boxing. I was like, why would I, why would I do that? You know, he said, well, you know, if you do boxing plebe summer, you don't have to do it plebe year. So your freshman year at the academy, you have to take PE classes, and they're not, you know, go, you know, play volleyball or or something. It's boxing, it's wrestling, it's hand to hand combat. Every year at the Naval Academy, you take swimming, and uh, it's again, it's not splashing around the pool. They're time tests. They teach you your first year your basic survival stroke, side stroke, back stroke, uh, crawl stroke. They, they test you, you know, people fail these tests. They end up having to spend the summer retaking tests. It's crazy. You, when you graduate, by the time you graduate, you have to swim a mile in uniform um, mm-hmm. as a test. But anyway, so please summary gets me into boxing because, you know, I didn't, I, I want that extra time during academic year. Time is precious there. Um, now, wait a minute. Were you good with your hands? When I was, uh, before I boxed? Before you boxed. Or after? No, before. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't know what I was. I knew I was fine. I grew up in South Central LA, but I didn't <laughs> uh, You know, you, you really, it's, it's completely different. You know, I spent uh, spent about three weeks getting, you know, my nose bloodied and head bashed in because uh, I, I was training with a guy who had actually just graduated from the academy. He had been a brigade champion. Uh, but, it was for me, the other aspect of boxing was, you know, I remember I had not gotten to West Point because I had failed their physical aptitude exam, right? My, my grade, my scores weren't high enough. But, you know, boxing completely changed uh, not only me, my physical makeup. You know, we did a lot of push-ups, a lot of pull-ups, a lot of run. Didn't lift weights. They wouldn't let you do that there. But a lot of calisthenics and, and you know, just endurance, you know, conditioning type stuff. Um you know, we'd have practices on Fridays where we would be an open practice. If you were a box, you were a uh, football guy, a baseball crew, whatever, you'd come train with us because we weren't doing contact. Three-hour practice, three hours of pull-ups, push-ups, running, out, the obstacle course at the Naval Academy, ending with, you know, you do 500 sit-ups, stuff like that. And you just learn it's all up here. You know, it wasn't ever how fit you were, but if you if you didn't quit, you could make it through these tough workouts. So th- boxing just f- fundamentally changed my, my physical and mental toughness. Um, really set me up for the Marine Corps because, you know, you, you just learn how to, to, to get through it. So, so plebe year was, as I mentioned early, earlier, you just, you were, you had very limited free time. You know, you, you were in class or you were doing military stuff or you were in your sport. The military stuff included, you know, uh, memorizing a bunch of trivial information, whether it was, you know, every, every day we had to know something about different 
aspects of the naval service about the Marines or naval aviation or ships. Um, we had to read the front page of the newspaper, the, the front page and the sports page of the newspaper and basically tell the upperclassmen at, at meals what we read, summarize it. Uh, you had to go to meals. You set out attention. You had to serve the upperclassmen first and whatever was left. They, you know, you would, uh, you get the, your squad ate at the tables, 12 guys at a table and, uh, the chipmen at the table and four plebes, four freshmen that would serve the upperclassmen and whole time they're asking questions and, um, and, uh, you know, you had to sit attention and all this stuff. So it was very, very, you know, structured, rigid. Um, I think that most people that struggled with the academy, it wasn't because of the ones that eventually got kicked out. It wasn't so much that that stuff was difficult. It was just, it was a grind, you know, it, it got old after a while for a lot of people. Um, they, they went home and talked to their buddies who were regular colleges having a good time. They just got sick of it. Um, so did you then, see a lot of people get to that point and leave? I mean, oh yeah. they, I mean, they would just get tired of it. You know, they would just say, I'm done. Um, you know, a lot of guys, cause you could, you could, you could go your freshman and sophomore year there and quit basically the day, uh, I don't know if it was the day before junior year or the day after your last day of sophomore year, and you didn't know the military any time. You were done. Mm. They paid for two years of school, and you could go back to wherever you came from and go to civilian college. After that, you, you were obligated, right? But there were, there were, but what would wash most people out, uh, I tell people this all the time, it wasn't the military stuff. It was school. The academics, they were really hard. I mean, it was really difficult and the the a lot of people got washed out on academic boards um they got you know they just they couldn't balance you know the, the school work and the and the and ath- athletics and the and the military so time management is very important you have to prioritize everything you know you just have to know that hey i may not get everything done today i got to figure out what's important yeah. make sure i get that done and, and it's a daily exercise so, so you went through, you had your struggles, right? I mean, in our conversations in the past, you've talked about you, you had a struggle that you had overcome academically uh, yeah. while you were in school. Give us, our, uh, give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, so you know, it was my second semester, my sophomore year. I was a math major. I think I was carrying like four or five you know, high-level math classes along with everything else, along with, I think, physics that year and some other uh, classes, technical classes, and, and I was boxing. And uh, that was the year I went to um, brigade championship. I was uh, the champion in my my weight class at the Naval Academy. I won my weight class. And then I went to Eastern's, Eastern College Boxing Association, won that regional bout, uh, Eastern champ. And then I went to Nationals, lost a split decision at Nationals. So I boxed all year. I went, I did really well, uh, but, you know, the grave suffered, you know, I, I didn't have as much time, I think, as I probably would have liked to have to, to study all those classes. I didn't manage my time as well. I was always tired. I never got enough sleep and I didn't eat, you know, you had to cut weight to fight. So it, it showed in my grades and uh, it was a tough thing. It was like, you know, I went to this thing and uh, there's all these officers there and they're reading over your, your uh, uh, transcript and they're looking at your, Right up on your from your uh, company officer and all these other people that knew you, and they make a judgment on whether or not you you know you get to stay. And I'll never forget the words of uh, Colonel Ripley. He was a Vietnam vet, uh, 
won the Navy Cross, which is the second highest award or highest uh, you know, award in the, in the military, Naval Service. And he vouched for me. He's like, hey, I think Daryl belongs here. You know, he he uh, he has what it takes. And that, that's really all I needed to hear. I mean, I, I struggled with, you know, you know, do I really belong in this environment? It was such a difficult semester. Um, questioned my ability to do the work. Um, was just very, uh, you know, worried that I had I made the wrong wrong choice here. You know, this is really hard. But uh, between the you know the colonel's words, uh, you know, parents talking me up, uh, I was able to get through that. And my next semester at Naval Academy. Uh, my grades basically doubled. I mean, that's how bad they were. My grade point average just went through the roof. I got out of boxing, and I just I really focused on school. I, my uh, junior and and uh, senior year, and and I became a really good student. I mean, I really learned how to study. I didn't have um, some of the you know uh, challenges in terms of. I, I did really well in school after that. So, Daryl, I want to I ask you this because, you know, you went through that hard time. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of people at the academies that sophomore year, that was a decision-making year that they, they decide, okay, this mm -hmm. isn't for me. Um, what was it for you? And then what do you think the general population um, of the academies – what what is it that gets you over that hump? Is it a sense of purpose? Like this is this is what mm -hmm. I'm meant to do? Is it mm -hmm. outside influence? You mentioned um, you know your your family, um, you know other uh, officers vouching for you, giving you that encouragement. But ultimately, you had to take that upon yourself to say, hey, you know I am in boxing and I've had success at that, but that is not more important than what my ultimate goal is. So what was it for you? Mm -hmm. And then what do you think the general population is that drives those individuals to push through the routine, the, the routine, the time commitment, the mm -hmm. physical demand, all those things that are involved in the academy? Um, it's different for everyone, but I think generally it is, you know, a higher purpose, higher, higher calling. I mean, if, you know, a lot of guys that were, and gals that were serious about serving, you know, I think that's what drove them. You know, there were people there that really wanted to be pilots. You know, Top Gun was pro popular back then. And there were dudes that just were like, hey, I'm going to be Top Gun. So that's all they focused on. They had airplanes on their desk. And, you know, that was their thing. Um, I think some of the some of the folks um, were third generation. One of my buddies, uh, Admiral uh, Mustin, John Mustin, he, he's a two-star admiral. Uh, his, I think he's second or third generation Naval Academy. I think his grandfather was one of the first pilots to, you know, land on an aircraft carrier, be launched from an aircraft carrier. So this was a guy that was, you know, this is this is his, what his family did. Um, I think that uh, what I didn't mention about what Colonel Ripley told me too after he said, "Hey, you belong here," was, but you need to get out of boxing. I mean, it, that was, those were his words. You know, you need to, you know, you're here to be a Marine officer. Uh, boxing is great, but you know, you're not going to. You're not going to achieve that goal if you keep doing it. So and it was tough. I had to talk to my coach about it. He was, of course, trying to talk me uh, out of not getting, not leaving the team. But I say I just got to, you know, I got to prioritize things here. And, and graduating is more important to me than being a champion. Uh, I've done it. It was great. Got the T-shirt, you know. But I got to, I got to really focus. Um, I think uh, there were people that, you know, I think what all, every one of us had that. that especially the ones that went through some tough times, 
is just you know he didn't didn't want to quit you know and that that's probably the thing that that I learned from all of that that's why it was so hard to get out of boxing frankly you know, I, I struggled with the idea of you know I'm, I, am I a quitter if I stop doing out you know to to it's a daily struggle it's a daily grind it's not there's nothing glamorous about it you know you see us with in our nice white uniforms and tossing our hats up on graduation day well you know most days weren't like that <laughs> it was just down and dirty you know you would when i was boxing i would come back from the gym with a you know bloody nose blood all on my shirt and just black eye or whatever and uh, you know, there was no sympathy. It was nobody, you know, girlfriend saying, Hey, it's going to be all right. You, you went there, you took a shower, you went to chow, you hit the books. Nobody had time to baby you. I mean, you, wow. your classmates would encourage you, yeah. but you know, it was a pretty tough environment. And, um, I think it, it really, uh, you can edit it out. Okay. And it's really about not quitting, man. That's yeah. the bottom line. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because the easiest part about goals is writing them down or thinking about mm-hmm. them, right? So anybody can write down a goal. Anybody can think about a goal. Mm-hmm. So you, you worked your whole life for this goal. I'm curious for you personally, how did the reality compare to what you thought it would be working mm-hmm. your whole life for this one specific goal? Yeah, it's a really good point. Question. I think, um, you know, it's like I said, it was just really hard. I mean, uh, and not in the ways that, that I thought it would be. Like, it was, again, the plebe summer, getting yelled at thing, and, you know, you get used to it. It's no big deal. Um, I think the, the academics, while I felt I was prepared after the prep school, you know, they were a little tougher, especially sophomore year, and I thought. But it, it was just it, bringing it all together, right? Just every day having to figure out what was important, uh, you know, getting burnt out. There was no such thing as, you know, getting burnt out. You may have been burnt out, but you just had to work through it. Mm-hmm. You can go take some vacation someplace and decompress. You know, you, you just had to, you were in there, you were in this pressure cooker, and you had to figure out a way to, to survive in it. So there was just many a day that was, you know, wasn't fun, wasn't glamorous, you know, Oh, wasn't what you see in the movies. It's just hard work. And I think that you, what you, what, and in so many ways, it was much easier um, there than, than being a Marine officer because not only did you yourself to worry about and take care of, you had 40, at one point I had 300 Marines that was responsible for, and you were, you know, you had this amazing, this some you know privilege lead marines but it was a big responsibility that went with that especially for you know I, I was in desert storm you have this huge responsibility uh to bring these bring these guys back home in one piece and you know you didn't want to be writing their mothers dads telling them hey i messed up your, your son's dead mm-hmm. so as difficult as the naval academy was and it's as tough as the environment was, it was a piece of cake compared to lead Marines in the uncertainty in the fog of war where, you know, you make a mistake there, man, if somebody dies, you got to live with that the rest of your life. We were just studying physics and, you know, chemistry yeah. and mm-hmm. getting in the boxing ring. You know, the, the, the real 
the real stuff happened after you got out of there. So when was that reality? So you, you, you graduate, well, you, did you graduate and then go, uh, to desert storm? Or- no, no, no. So we, so, um, uh, all Marine officers have to go to a uh, Marine basic officer course, Quantico. It's a six month, uh, course they, where they really teach you how to be a Marine officer. I mean, you, you learn at the Naval Academy, some, some good stuff and leadership and learn about the, the Naval service, but at the T- Marine basic officer course, you, you're, you know, you start at the individual level all the way to the rifle company learning, uh, about weapons, about, um, tactics. Um, you spend a lot of time in the field being cold, tired and hungry, um, humping a lot of weight on your pack. Um, and you know, land navigation, just a lot of, lot of stuff. Um, administrative aspects of the Marines, um, everything it takes to, to be basically trained officers, what they, what they tell you you are. And then you go to your, uh, MOS school, your, your basically your job, you know, uh, learn that you go to school for about three months for that. Pilots go to Pensacola. They, they train with Naval aviators. They learn how to be pilots. And then you go to your first unit and I was stationed in Hawaii. Nice. Um, which a lot of people say, man, that must have been great. I was very upset that I was going there because I really wanted to get back to the West Coast, to my family. I figured, you know, they got 20,000 Marines at Camp Pendleton. I Surely they got a spot for me, but they, you know, they sent me to Hawaii. And uh, when I first got there, I just thought, you know, this is going to suck. You know, I, I, I'm not going to get the training here. I felt like it was going to be a, you know, bunch of dudes walking around and flip-flops, you know, not, mm-hmm. not on base, but after, you know, after hours. It was just a very laid-back place which actually was kind of cool it got me made me chill out a lot um but you know after about a year in hawaii um during which i had a couple of at a platoon i had a couple of deployments and you know you know to 29 palms in the desert california we went to uh, big island did some training went to washington state did some stuff after a year you know the, the balloon went up we were actually getting ready to start an exercise on the big island when a, the colonel walks in the door and says hey uh Guys, we uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and we were like, you know, yes, yeah, sir. How does that affect our lives? He's like, well, we'll see. And the next day, we're packing our stuff, you know, because that was our uh, area of responsibility for our, our our unit. And so we were, you know, we we're back on Oahu. Um, that's when it really hit me. You know, they they said, hey, where's your where's your will and power of attorney, and make sure your your guys all have wills, and you know, if they die, if they've married, they gotta, you know. Or when they go over there, actually, when they go and they get deployed, the wife's got to be able to take care of the finances. If they die, they got to have all this stuff squared away. So, you know, and be, and we were, we were, uh, had you, wait a minute. Had gas. No, had you already met yeah, Jackie? Had, to, had you already met Jackie? No, or no? No, no, okay. no. Jackie right. tells me if, if she, if I've been in the Marine Corps and she met me, she would have never married me. So <laughs> I was long after, I met her long after I got out. Okay. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, you just go through all the stuff, you know, we were walking around preparing for chemical attacks, getting trained for that. And you're in Hawaii in 89 degree weather and, mm. and you're miserable because you have on this charcoal line suit, and the gas mask, and you're having to work in that. Not knowing that when we got to Saudi Arabia, um, it was 110 degrees, 120 mm. degrees, uh, very hot. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's just all this stuff you had to get ready for. And again, back to fear. I mean, there was a real palatable fear there. Uh, because of what we were reading about about his army, about Saddam's army, and how you know they were battle hardened, and you know we was probably about I don't know we landed probably about five or six thousand Marines, uh, maybe a ten thousand army 
troops and about 200,000 Iraqis to our north. So, you know, you run through these calculations from the time you're there until the time we were done with the war about, you know, how this thing was going to turn out. It just was never pretty until it actually happened. But, you know, it goes back to, um, I think a couple of things came into play there was one, you're so focused on your guys, and making sure they're okay and they got what they need and, you know, getting trained and ready to go. You didn't have a lot of time to think about yourself. You know, it's just a huge responsibility. Um, and then, you know, my faith really played in a, a big role there because, uh, you know, you, you know, they, they always say there's no atheists in, in foxholes. Uh, that's really true. Uh, I mean, you, you just realize that at that point that uh, you got to rely on a higher power to get through this one. I mean, we, we really, uh, it, it turned out all right, you know, especially when compared to what the veterans are dealing with now, the younger guys have to deal with in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. Uh, we, our, our, our war was a cakewalk, but it certainly didn't seem that way before we went in because we were greatly outnumbered. Even when we, uh, we went into from, Initially, it was Desert Shield, so we were defending Saudi Arabia. We went to Desert Storm, started getting ready for offensive operations. We had a lot more Marines there, um, you know, a couple of divisions, but we were still facing a much larger force. All the math said that, you know, we were going to get uh, clobbered. You know, they had six months to dig in. They had gas. They had, you know, uh, barbed wire and all this stuff. You know, obstacles and stuff, and and we we got through it. You know, the, the Marine Corps really uh, uh, performed well. Uh, G- General Schwarzkopf said, you know, sometimes you're we were the supporting attack. You know, we, our job was to go to the airport, and uh, that was our objective. But our job was really to to hit the Iraqis, pull back, keep, keep them fixed, while the Army did the left hook. The Seventh Corps, I think, did the left hook and went after Republican guards. We weren't supposed to punch through, and you know, just do what we did. Um, so Schwarzkopf said, sometimes your supporting attack becomes your main attack because, you know, Marines aren't going to, they're not going to sit still. You know, we, we went in there and, you know, exploit success. You, you, you get momentum, you keep going. And, and that's what we did. And we, we hit our objective way before, uh, the army secured theirs. But, um, I don't think what that, what that taught me was how important, um, leadership is and how, um, you know, it's like I said earlier, all the things that we taught were taught and we, we were trained to do uh, just kind of came out when we we had to execute. Uh, I, I always like to say, I love the Marine Corps, but I, I love to say that uh, the Marine Corps is pretty dysfunctional uh, organization in peacetime. You got these young 18, 19 year old guys getting into trouble and just, you know, being, being guys. But when it, when it, when the, when the chips are down and they, they're doing their job, they are just so professional. I mean, they, they just, they, they're young guys that can handle responsibilities that people much older than them would, wouldn't be able to, to, to manage. Uh, they, they're just very professional and take care of each other. And, um, you know, you just, as a leader, you just honored to, to, to be a part of the organization, lead these guys. Yeah. I talk, mean, they, they, talk about that, know. that leadership, you know, you go from the Academy where it's not life or death, right? It's academics, graduating, right. progressing and all yeah. that. But now you're being deployed and you're mm-hmm. in charge of units. You know, you mentioned, you know, from the teens to hundreds at some point, you know, mm-hmm. how do you as a leader or how have you seen leaders around you take these 18, 19 year old kids that maybe at that point now have gone on accelerated paths to be deployed mm-hmm. over into mm-hmm. Iraq? 
um, and mm-hmm. to Desert Storm. How do you? How is that different? I mean, how are you? They they come off of the bird, and you're looking in the eyes of these kids. And now you know you're mm-hmm. in your mid late twenties at this point. I'm assuming, correct? Because you'd gone through mm-hmm. the academy yeah. and got through training. Yeah. So now you're looking at these kids. And now you're responsible for them, but what do you do as a leader to help them go perform and to uh, complete their missions the way that they are and to, okay, we got to remove the fear of death and the fear of all Mm -hmm. these things so that we can actually operate at a high level. I'm not sure you ever get rid of the fear. I mean, uh, they just learn how to operate in spite of it. And they rely on a train. We all rely on our training. Uh, Marine boot camp is no joke, you know, all the other training that the guys get is pretty intense. Um, they do a good job of, of making Marines there. Um, and as a, as a young officer, I wasn't that much older than him. I think I was probably 23, 24, but you know, you rely, any good officers relying on his, his, his sergeants, his non-commissioned officers, uh, to, to, uh, teach him leadership. You know, you, you get this great education, you get some good training in, uh, the basic officer course in your MOS training. But it's those sergeants, you know, they're the backbone of the Marine Corps, and they really teach you how to lead. Uh, they teach you a lot about your men and how to how to get them to respond and, and on how to get stuff done, and will support them uh, 100%. You take care of your Marines, you take care of your NCOs. You know, it's it, it's really a pretty easy job. I mean, it's got its, it's challenges, but so much harder if you don't listen to those guys. At the same time, they, they, they expect you to lead. Now, they, they don't expect you to just look listen to them and, you know, take their cues all day. They want you to learn and to, you know, uh, to, 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 to understand how things are done. But, you know, you got to make decisions. First, the worst thing you can do as a junior officer in the Marine Corps is not make a decision. Decisiveness is everything. Combat is everything. If you, you know, you want to make good decisions. Let's be clear about that. But, you know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you know, read a situation wrong and make a mistake, but you can't just sit there and, and freeze. You got to keep making decisions. You got to keep working the problem. And that's what they teach you. Uh, and they teach you to set the example. That's really important in the Marine Corps. You got to set the example. All your men are, are looking at you when things are rough. And they're trying to figure out how you're going to respond. How, what, when, you know, what, what does your body language say about, you know, how you're dealing with this problem? Are you freaking out? Are you calm? You know, are you, you know, able to make decisions or are you frozen? So, you know, that becomes really important. They, they really drill that into you. And uh, they just do a great job of, of developing Marines and leaders. Um, and there's a great book uh, written by General Mattis, who was Major Mattis when I was uh, um, when I was a midshipman candidate prep school called uh, "Find Chaos" by General Mattis okay. or Secretary Mattis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he 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 talks a lot about the way the Marine Corps teaches people how to lead, and uh, I really really enjoyed reading it. Um, but that 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 that'll give you some insights. But I, I think they just do a great job of uh, teaching people how to deal with uncertainty and stress as leaders, which is very applicable to, to what we're dealing and that's, with with COVID-19. And that's, and well, and I, and I want to take this, and I don't want to skip over your military journey. And, and first and foremost, mm-hmm. before we go any further, thank you for your service and serving our country and, and everything that you did. Um, 
but I, we would like to kind of step forward. And that's a great segue in all the, the tools that you just described that the, the Marines prepared their leaders to be and, and you know, the troops and, and everyone. How, as you made that transition and talk us through transitioning from military to a civilian, um, what mm-hmm. that was like for you, but then also all of those things that you just described, all the training that you went through, how that helped you, you know, do what you're do what you're doing now at Skyview Capital. Mm-hmm. Well, so the transition, um, wasn't planned initially. I thought I was going to do 30 years in Marine Corps and, um, at one point, uh, just got kind of interested in going back to, to school and getting a, getting an MBA. And uh, when I when I applied and I got into uh, USC University of Southern California's business school, um, I was pretty happy with just you know going, going to school part time and serving at uh, Marine Air Station El Toro. Um, and, and, and I think it was about a three-year program there, um, MBA program. And, uh, you know, it made sense. I was an econ major, undergrad. I thought it would, be, it would be good to get an MBA. And the guy that ran that program at USC said, hey, you know, um, have you considered going full-time? And I was like, no, not really. I'm, you know, I'm going to be a career guy. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you when, you, when you get done with this program, you may want to go into business. So I, I gave it some thought and um, worked on my, uh, my GMAT scores, the, the test you take to, to get in uh, to business school and, and, and did really well and, and ended up going to, to, to Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania, which is one of the best business schools in the, in the world. And it fundamentally changed the way I thought about a lot of things. Uh, you know, the education was amazing. Uh, it, it, we had great professors. I took some, some, some really interesting classes. I was a finance and entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial management major. So I, I never really, you know, knew much about what entrepreneurs did or, you know, what it was like to own or start a business. So that was just really cool. The, the, The students were great, you know, really bright folks from all over the world, very different than, you know, there's some vets there, but a lot of them were you know, very different than the people I'd been going to school with and served with. So it kind of opened up my mind and an opportunity to travel. I'd done some traveling for, uh, before then, uh, before I got to business school and the Marines, but I got to you know go to Latin America, never really been to South America. I went to Brazil and Argentina and studied down there um, between my first and second years. So it was a great experience. It was just kind of this, you know, change, uh, change the way I thought about problem solving and uh, how I looked at the world, adopted this global business perspective, um, and uh, met some people from, from all over. Um, ended up going into management consulting uh, for Accenture, uh, was in their strategy practice. Uh, that was cool too. The work was very interesting. You know, you, you got to apply a lot of stuff that you did. Um, you learned in business school. Uh, I think. The biggest transition items from the military, though, into B school and into Accenture was the need to network. Uh, you didn't. I didn't really network as a as a junior officer in the Marines. It just you know you were in your unit. You didn't really care about knowing folks from you know all over the Marines. It was just that was that was your world. Uh, it was essential at, at at Wharton just to you know to get a job. I mean, you had to network uh, constantly. 
Um, and so I had to learn how to, you know, um, how to relate to people, how to have a conversation with them, uh, how to learn about people and teach, tell them about, excuse me, about myself, you know, and then uh, how to keep in touch with folks. And that became a very critical skill. It's probably, I learned more, I, I, learning networking was probably more important than anything I ever got classroom at, at, at business school. Yeah, you know what? So, and you're speaking, yeah, yeah. I don't want to cut you off there, but you're, you're speaking on, you know, th- th- your transition is, is equal to, you know, our transition. Both Tyler and I played in the NFL and Ben played up in the, uh-huh. in, uh, through college. But that transition of people are normally coming to you for information or you're, de- you're dealing with those, those people within yeah, your locker that room. That unit or that locker yeah, room. Yeah, that yeah. unit, your yeah. locker room. Yeah. But now Very you similar. have to get outside your own bubble and start yeah. networking. And, and that yeah. that speaks to a lot of people that are listening to the podcast today that want to be successful or have goals that they want to achieve, but yet they're sitting in this bubble and they and they're afraid to reach mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So give us so a little you bit. You got to get out of it. Yeah. Give us a little bit more about that networking because yeah. I think that's really catapulted you to where you are today. Yeah, no, it, it was a huge lesson. I mean, it was kind of you know baptism by fire in my case because I had to I had to get a job and I I went. I, I chose one of the most competitive uh, careers in, in B school. I mean, you know, uh, coming out of B school, uh, back then it was uh, investment banking and consulting. Those are the hot career tracks. You know, everybody wanted to work for McKinsey or Bain or Accenture, or they wanted to go, you know, work for Goldman Sachs. So um, it, it was just, I hadn't, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I worked, I was an analyst at McKinsey before B school, I was a Marine. So I had to get out there and, you know, kind of figure out how to, how to speak these people's language, uh, how to, how to relate to them. Um, I had to learn from them. I think what a lot of people didn't do, and I, I forget who told me this, but you know, I, I did informational interviews. I would, I would have lunch with anyone that would allow me to, when I went home on spring break or Christmas break to LA, I would schedule, I would schedule, lunches and breakfasts with folks not to get a job from them just to learn what the hell they did so it was very important for me to to just get out and and learn about the craft learn what consulting was about and and network um i didn't you know i've I've been doing it ever since i got out of the military i didn't really understand the uh you know the, the the uh the approach or process but I read probably 10 years ago a book uh, called Never Eat Alone. Um, and uh, I forget the author's name. I can look on my bookshelf back here, probably get you the author. But uh, it's a great book. It taught you all the ins and outs of networking, you know, how to how to approach people, how to, you know, have conversations, how to uh, work a room, how to schedule uh, dinner parties, have dinner parties at your house as a way to keep in touch with people and get to meet people. I mean, just all these great tips, how to organize a Rolodex and to maintain contacts with folks. It's not just about hanging out and having beers with people. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more to it if you do it right. So, um, but, but, you know, and part of it too was just kind of getting over your, whatever fears and, you know, concerns you may have had about meeting people that were different than you. Uh, I mean, I just learned very quickly. I couldn't get caught up in, the fact that some of these guys were very bright or very rich or very this or that, they're, they're human beings. And, you know, you just got to, 
you got to approach this thing from that perspective um, and, and, and try to relate to them. You don't be jerks. I mean, but you know, you yeah. you just got to get past that. It's jerks yeah. everywhere, right? Yeah. So I think that's with with most people that transition, especially early on in that transition process. There's a big fear of, well, hey, I'm not the expert in this new field mm-hmm. yet, or you know, maybe I'm in, you know, less superior than than the person that I'm talking to. How did you mm-hmm. overcome that? Obviously, you've had life experiences that you know many of the people in all these rooms that you were in it couldn't even touch. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you were new to this career. Um, so how did you overcome that fear of, okay, maybe I don't know as much about this industry as this person I'm talking to, but I can still add value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the only way you learn really is to ask questions. I think intellectual curiosity is key, you know, and, and being genuinely interested and, and curious about people and what they do, you know, and not making it about you, making it about them, really trying to understand what makes them tick. Why do they like this job what do they do and you know um always trying to put yourself in their shoes and you know is this something i you know i think i could be successful at so you know if if you make it about you one you'll be boring when you talk to them you know Uh it's just they're going to tune out but but if you if you really are sincere and learn about them and 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 their career uh, people will talk to you and uh, I don't care who it is. I mean, uh, very rarely does that not work. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really served me well. Uh, I think, um, you know, if I look back on the past 20 so years, I've been in business, I've gotten so many breaks and opportunities through my network and I've helped other people who were, you know, maybe transitioning out of the military or, you know, trying to get that next job through my network. And it, 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 it doesn't stop. You don't ever stop. You don't ever stop learning. You don't ever stop networking. You know, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I, I like to read. I don't read as much as I, as I used to. I'm trying to get back into it. One of the nice things about this COVID-19 thing is giving me, you know, making me think a lot more about reading and read on the plane when I travel sometimes, but you never stop learning. You know, you never yeah. should never stop reading. Uh, as a leader, especially, you know, one of the things General Mattis did, I think he has like four, three or 4,000 books in his library. They call him the warrior monk. He's one of, you know, best read military leaders we've ever had. Uh, but he's like, man, if you don't read about war as a, you know, as an officer, you're going to make this or any NCOs troops. He said, you know, most important real estate on the battlefield is the six inches between your ears. You know, Marines are, train to read, you know, first thing we did at TBS, basic officer course, spent like 200 bucks on a bunch of books. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, man, I'm, I'm coming they call in here to knowledge. Be a, yeah. <laughs> read your knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. 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 They, you mean, Marines have this stereotype being a bunch of Neanderthals and, and stuff, but they, they, most Marine officers, most Marine NCOs are very well read. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's a career thing. You have to read your entire career. Well, it's the same thing out here in the civilian world. It's important to read and, and to network. I mean, it's, you never stop. You have to make it a habit, you know, of, of getting out and meeting people. Uh, I've formed several networking groups um, over over my career. Uh, I don't just go go out there and go to somebody else's thing. I, I set my own stuff up. Um, but, you know, that becomes really important. You know, it's, it's who you know and what you know, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you got to keep, you got to keep uh, sharpening the, the, the tools and not just, getting complacent thinking, well, I know everybody or I know everything. It's, that's just not true. 
So yeah. I, you're now you're in a, a leadership role with the, with a with a global company. Um, so there's a a 25 year old kid uh, that comes to you. What is it that they could say to you from a networking perspective that is going to get you intrigued to say, okay, hey. I'll spend time talking to him or I'll return an email or what is mm-hmm. it that you look for, for someone that's going to say, okay, Hey, you know, I can share some of my, you know, limited amount of time with this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good question. I think, you know, it's just, I think I get back to this intellectual curiosity thing, asking questions and stuff. You know, if, if somebody's genuinely interested in something, they, they're going to ask questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they, they'll want to know what you did or, you know, what your work's like, um, opportunities at our, at our firm, those sorts of things. Um, I think if I'm thinking in terms of, is this someone I'd like to hire? Intellectual curiosity is very important in our field. The technical skills, that, you know, whether it be finance or some of the operational uh, skills and leadership we need are, are critical for me. But I think it's also it's those intangibles around grit, around, you know, perseverance that I look for. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little biased. I, I like hiring athletes or former athletes. Cause I think you learn a lot of that in sports. You know, you learn teamwork, you learn not to quit because what we do is pretty tough. I mean, it's, it's long hours. Uh, it's, it's very demanding. I'm a pretty demanding boss. If you ever work for me, I think my people would say, you know, I, I'm not a jerk, but you know, male son. Like, <laughs> sure. Well, sure there, about that. Well, there's a don't yeah. have to ask somebody. <laughs> there's a but, level of discipline that you people. demand. I mean, yeah. I, you know, they they know that you know um, it's important for me to I demand excellence. You know, what we do is it's important. We get things a lot of things right. We make mistakes, and as long as people own their mistakes and learn from them, that's okay. But but it's a, it's a demanding job, you know. Um, so. So I look for I look I look at uh, young folks who, you know, are, are curious, want to learn. Uh, even if this isn't the career for them, it's it's okay to talk, you know, and ask questions. It, 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 it's fine. I don't mind sharing. Um, if they're really looking at getting into this, though, they need to make sure that they that they they have the um, ability to stick to it, you know, because it, there's setbacks. You know, there's times we we shoot we look at probably any given time I'm looking at 20, 30 deals, you know, and you know, we might get one of those done. So there's a, you get a lot of situations where you're, you're close to the finish line. It doesn't happen. You got to keep going, you know, mm-hmm. or there's a setback in a company, a por- portfolio company, they're chasing after a customer. It doesn't happen. You can't, you know, uh, get, get down on that. You got to keep moving. And there's so, so much wisdom from you yeah. and, and, you know, most people listen to podcasts either in the car or while they're working out or doing something. I really think people need to re-listen to this with a notepad and a pen because there's so many good things that we can we can take away from this. One question we like to ask everybody to finish it off, um, and I'm curious what you're going to say because you seem to be a very structured and goal-oriented person. So for you, you can go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing. Where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Oh, good question. Um, I, I think it probably goes back to, you know, when I was a kid and when fear drove me, fear motivated me, fear guided some of my decisions. I would tell myself, you know, it's going to be all right. God's got you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, don't don't just focus on 
all the bad things can ha that can happen if you don't do something. Think about the good things that happen if you do do something. Uh, because like I said, it, it took it took me a while to, and I still struggle with it, to uh, not allow fear to drive me. Um, you know, you know, you 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 got to find a way to let, let the good things in life and the goals be be the things that really push you. I mean, it, it's kind of you kind of got. I had both going on, but I think the fear was probably a bigger motivator than the than the you know uh, aspiration of doing something. It, it could you know, potentially change the world. It could definitely change my life and those people around me. Mm -hmm. uh, that 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 that's what I, I would tell my younger self is, is you know don't worry about things. That's awesome, Daryl. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, like Ben said, I've got I've got a couple pages of notes just just in our conversation, and and so thank you so much for the wisdom and. Um, hopefully, uh, Darren doesn't keep you to himself. Uh, going I will forward. He'll love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Daryl. Before we go, I just got one thing. And just in in, in in two, give us in two minutes. Mm -hmm. What you're passionate about? Passionate about right now? I know you've you've gone through your experiences in life and you've built so many relationships. But right now, tell us what you're passionate about moving mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, my family is really uh, important to me and making sure that my, my wife, my mom, my daughter are all taken care of. You know, it's really, really important uh, that I do that. And I just materially, I mean, I think that's obvious. That, you know, we all want to do that. But, you know, emotionally, their needs there, you know, that, uh, that they're supported emotionally and their support they know that you know i especially my daughter that i care about her um you know that she doesn't have to go meet some dude to to make her feel important she's got her dad uh so you know a lot of my thought a lot of my prayers are, are around that um you know outside of that and in my faith i mean i think i'm passionate about that i know i am because i think you know, especially as we get a little older and we reflect on our life and, you know, where we've been and what we've done, you know, this didn't happen by, none of it happened by accident. You know, I didn't survive South Central LA. I didn't go to the Naval Academy. Uh, I didn't go to Desert Storm and survive that or, or get to elite business school or have the career success I've had by accident. I mean, I've got a bigger purpose on this earth. And, um, you know, I like to give back. I like to do things. Um, monetarily and with my time to uh, just try to help people uh, less fortunate than me. I mean, I, I think it's important that, you know, we be, we all be good stewards of what God has given us. None of this stuff is ours. We're just watching it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, giving's important to me. Um, again, setting that example for my daughter, uh, it's important that she understands that, you know, uh, we live in a bubble here in Frisco and there's a lot of people that don't live far, far from here that, that aren't as blessed as we are. So giving is important. And um, that's all part of me, you know, uh, taking care of my family is making sure that they have a relationship, uh, especially my daughter with God and, um, and that she understands that, you know, we we're blessed. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. those things are important to me. I don't know if, if I'm rambling or unclear, but you know, no, it's, it's so good. important that you, 
you know, stay grounded, man, and, and not all this can be gone tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah so, that's so true. You know. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the things that, that we, I love personally, and I'm sure, sure the guys here feel the same way is a lot of the things that we're trying to talk about on this show. I think your life exemplifies mm. exactly to the T, you know, starting off early on with your goals and you had goals from an early age is I'm not going to let my surroundings dictate my future and I'm not going to let my, that control me. And then I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be disciplined. And then you get to the Academy and it's persistence and, and saying, okay, Hey, this is, I'm burnt out. Like I don't, there's no end in sight. There's four years of this that I've got to endure and, and continue to progress. And then, you know, you go to wartime and, and that's faith and that's leadership and going that, that, you know, you know, God is going to take care of me and, and he is going to take care of my brothers and, and not all of them, even if, if he doesn't and they go to join him, you know, he's, that was part of his plan. But then yep. you go, then you go on and you take that leadership to the next point of your life. And then it's about people and service. And when we started the show, yeah. we talked about the COVID-19 and the impact that it has on companies globally. And yep. what I took from that was that, yes, like we're there to be an asset to these companies that are in trouble because we are going to help because, you know, whether it's 16,000 people in, in this call center company that we're working with, or it's 300 and a smaller, you know, subsidiary of another company, those people are affected by how we come in and lead. And then just that service mindset and this, this point in your life. I mean, all of these things are the things that we're talking about on this show. And I mean, really through the map of your life at some phase, there was a focus, but it seems like that's all been a part of it. And we thank you for, for living that journey yeah. and being an influence to people and coming on our our show because um, this is exactly your story is are the exact things that we want to share to encourage people that you can make it through these hard times. You can you overcome know. paralysis by that's analysis, right. brother. That, that's exactly yeah. right. Oh yeah, that is right. <laughs> so, so Daryl, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy this time with your family. Uh, you know, that's one of the silver linings we've talked about on the show with this this the circumstances and the pandemic that we're going through is that more time with our family and you know more time yeah, yeah. to to educate ourselves and read. And we thank you for that. Enjoy this time, uh, and thank you uh, for coming on the Darren Woodson podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, guys.